0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest on our programme. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Thousand Yard Stair because I spoke to Stephen Barnes recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also their time in the world of indie pop. Plus, they have a new album out at the moment, so they are still going. So, after a bit of casual chat, we got down to that world that was, I suppose, reflecting on the musical landscape, as well as, um, yes, how tribal things were back in the 80s and probably in the 70s. You went into one camp or the other, you know, musical camp, that is. So, um, yes, it was mainstream indie etc and this was Stephen's response Stephen, it's over to you
1: yeah well i think yeah i mean it's funny i mean i'm a i'm a, I'm a lecturer now and I, I do music business so obviously i'm talking about the music industry version 6.9 wherever we're on now the kind of the post digital if you want to call it like the, you know the, the new age after the digital age if you like and how it's starting to sort of manufacture itself into this kind of new paradise we've, we've had enough time now to be able to look back a little bit and go okay what has actually changed and one thing that always comes up is the fact that everyone listens to everything now, because you can, you know, you uh, you have Spotify and you and it's quite hard to find people who are defined into one particular sound or one particular style. Whereas when I was growing up, I'm sure it was the same for you. Your options for hearing music were so limited. You you had what you had. So I have basically had John Peel my next door neighbor's older brother who had a record player and bought records cause he was older and had a job and he was into punk music, like crass and exploited and stuff. And then I had a couple of friends who were into dub music right. and that was pretty much I had this strange myth. And that was, that's what I thought music was. I assumed that's what everyone would listen to, yes. you know, a mixture of things like, um, the Dismiss and Screaming Target and and Crass. I mean, that's normal, right? It's only later on you realise not that normal at all. Uh, (laughs) But when you're not exposed to anything else, that's what you you delve into so deeply, right?
0: Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, because it was John Peel... But that was that was the only way really, and so it was like the Bundy Boys, you know, early sort yeah. of rap music, and and any yeah. Bulgarian folk thrown in with Napalm Death and and jingly pop. So it was quite interesting. Yeah. So uh, before you
1: mentioned Napalm Death, I remember them, I remember John Peel playing Napalm Death, but I'd never heard anything like that before. I didn't. I still did. The times I don't know what happened there. And the same <laughs> show he played uh, "I Love My Radio" by J and I'd never heard.
0: Oh God. Rap. Yes.
1: Well, I'd heard I'd heard rap, but I hadn't heard a uh, specific rap track if you know what i mean it was actually made as i heard raps in tracks but this is a someone making a hip-hop record and it was like my god it just felt so visceral so even though listening back it's really tame yeah time i think just the sound of it was just like why is going on here this is quite insane you know of course the thing was you couldn't rewind could you 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 heard it in the moment and then you might not hear it again for weeks yes. so it's lives in your memory as you remembered it at the time and well, because this- a lot of the time for me I was I was meant to be in bed and asleep and I used to have a little radio with, with a single earpiece underneath the pillow to kind of pretend I was asleep so I think I heard a lot of this stuff while I was half asleep if you know what I mean so it probably took a different subconscious
0: yes to yes. me you
1: know I don't know it's quite interesting so I, we just discussed this kind of thing quite a lot so yeah. <laughs> it's very, yeah. very in my mind
0: yeah, well, I, I never listened to the John Peel show live, but I used to get my t- t- TDK D90 cassettes and record them, you know, 45 minutes a show with his show. And so I would have to listen to those several times because it all new music. It was just like... It just—it's just you know—it all sounds awful, really, apart from one song. And then you listen to it two or three times. You think, oh, "Okay, there's a few more songs that I quite like," and then you get the the general gist. And because I did it like that, I can really remember the little anecdotes and chat that he sometimes had between the songs as well, because. And I realised that there, there is a world of nerdy people with plastic bags of John Peel tapes who've done similar things, really. So, uh, mm. But I can remember LL Cool J, because he did, I think it was a seven-inch on Def Jam of Rock the Bells, Rock the Bells mm. and on the radio. And I went and, and found it in a charity, or not, a second-hand record shop, and went, oh, great, that's brilliant. That's, that's only spent a day of my life finding this single. Hurrah!
1: <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so. yeah it's a very different sort of way of doing things now but i'm not da- i'm not down on the new ways necessarily i'm I'm not uh i don't think it's just, i mean it is what it is you know and um yes, like i work with a lot of young musicians you know the advantages they do have is that they can take on so many different influences very early on and the ability to be able to actually express that quite easily it's it's quite punk times in a lot of ways maybe not from a music you know not not, not talking about punk rock I'm talking about the the ability to be able to get an idea in your head and actually actualize that in a in a sound quality recording yeah. because of all the technology that we have and I think it does lead to you know I mean like a you know it just lead to more experimentation I mean you don't see a lot of it because it's underneath the surface if you like as it always has been but also just that ability to get something down quite quickly um, and get it out into the world is you know it it doesn't mean a lot of it as most music a lot of it is rubbish but the odd gem will get through yeah you know so I think that You know there are a lot of things to be excited about about the sort of the new paradigms as well as obviously some things that we you know maybe we feel we've lost out of it because we grew through a different era but i suppose for people now they didn't live through that era so they're not losing anything no
0: they're definitely not so look so when I was, it's always interested. what was your, your formative teen years then from, the, say, the age of 10 to, to the, you know, the late teens? What were you listening to? What was on the radar? Because, like I said, me, I was kind of, it was the glam period of Sweet and Gary Glitter and mm-hmm. obviously Les Cooper with his uh, Schools Out was, was the great anthem and then David Bowie's uh, Space Oddity. So what was your sort of musical kind of moments?
1: Well, for me, we take those those, uh, those age periods, so that's pretty much 1980, 81 through to the end of the 80s, start of the 90s. And obviously we started the band in 88, so that was obviously, things were changing at that point. But anyway, you know, my, it wasn't a lot of music in our house, if you like. It wasn't a very musical house. Um, I lived... My uh, I did have a sister, but she she'd left home by then, so I was pretty much an only child, if you like. So very much to my own devices. So I was kind of looking for voices, I guess, all the time yes. to influence my life. um And as I was alluding to before, it was really a case of I. But the f- well, my first big love actually was because of my mother actually, and it was a band called Big Country. I don't know if you remember Big Country. Yes, God, the- I thought
0: I absolutely yeah. brilliant you know in fact they, I, what, I put those down i thought they were going to be bigger than you too that's how wrong i was like oh, big country well
1: yeah but they were better than you two. there's no two ways about that um <laughs> i was obsessed with it. and the crossing that was was I wasn't the, when the first album i ever bought with my money was um for the Young Soul Rebels by Dexter's Midnight Runners, yes. and uh, I bought that when I was at my nan. I was at my nan's house, who lived just outside of Leeds, um, and I went to the Arndale Centre, and there was, you know, the Woolworths, obviously. Uh, I went to the Woolworths, and I bought I bought the album, and I I brought it back, and she had a. As people did, I, I don't know if people still do, but she had a she had a room in the house that was like a guests forget guests, or when guests came, so it was the like room. another front. Was it a like best a
0: show? Yeah. Yes, Christ, so Christmas best and stuff. birthdays.
1: Christmas and birthdays, and you know, you'd have a, you know, you'd have precious no, it things,
0: real, precious yes, things.
1: crystal type things, and and plates on walls. That that room, and and a rug. You know, all did you have things.
0: a picture of Constable? You know, there was always a. My granny had a, picture of, a picture of
1: Constable,
0: some sort of reproduction it, of a Constable <laughs> painting that was, you know, a farmyard scene or.
1: It was kind of uh, gaudy wallpaper, you know, the kind of, you know, sort of gold flecked or something. I can't remember exactly. But the one thing I do remember in that room is she had one of those sideboard stereo systems. So, you know, it was a decanter and glasses on one side in a, in a glass front and then something on the other side. And in the middle was a radio yes. and, and, and a cassette player and there was a record player on the top. And so I asked if I was allowed to go in the, the best room and I went in with, with this record. Um, and I'll be honest I don't really know why that was the one I chose at the time I still can't think what was it about that because I didn't know too much about them was but Gino was on wasn't, it was, Gina, was Gina? Gino G, Gino wasn't on, Gino was on it yeah so that was the track that I knew but I don't know there was just something quite seductive about the cover or something. I don't know but it was the one I chose because you could only afford one <laughs> I remember putting it on and just that first 30 seconds where you've got all that the radio interference and all the different songs and all this kind of thing. Uh, And I just, I was transfixed by what is it? And then of course all this, you know, these horns come in and it's all dry sounding. I go back to it now and go, the production on that record is just wildly adventurous, although it's quite toned down, if you know what I mean. It's just a very dry sound. Anyway, so that was my first sort of record that I bought myself. But where I was getting all my influence from really was John as we just mentioned there. And, you know, my, so my next-door neighbour's older brother had, you know, records and a record player. So he used to go around his house and just listen to his records. So there was very much a sort of punk tinge to it. But then when I started to get into my own kind of thinking about this stuff, I've, I, you know, I became very much, an, you know, what you might call an indie fop, really. It was very much, you know, Morris, Morrissey was everything. Uh, I got through college basically painting pictures of Morrissey on backs of people's jackets. You know, it was Lloyd Cole, um, Lilac Time. you know, anything that was quite pastoral, anything that was quite just poetic, really. You know, it was all about the poetry, really.
0: It's <laughs> yes, poet, poetry and being a bit fey. Yeah, it was all that kind of delicate. That was my Jesus. Yeah, I think
1: that kind of suited how I I was. You know, it was kind of like it felt like a a voice that I could relate to. I guess so. That was very much, very much uh, how. That's what I kind of grew up with under my own sort of volition. Then obviously, as you get a little bit older, you start to mix with new people. Went I went to college new new sort of paradigm starts to open up and you can and you actually start to share the experience of music because i yeah. guess in your early years it's a, not very much a shared experience is it it's very much you on your own
0: yeah you know
1: listening to 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 the music and, and trying to get some meaning out of it or some feeling out of it and then yeah. you start to share music in in rooms going to see bands or or talking about it or sharing you know, headphones on your Walkman or whatever it might be and I think that changes it doesn't it a little yes, a bit. Yes
0: absolutely well I guess it, I suppose I don't know if it was a golden time but the 70s top of the pops on a Thursday and the top 40 or whatever it was the top 20 perhaps top 4 on a Sunday evening was kind of quite an event I think it was 7 o'clock and we seemed to sit round and listen to this because you know songs used to move up like one or two mm-hmm. places you know so it's like my god it's gone up a place, Oh, this is amazing. Yeah. It's 28 in the charts. It could go to 25 next week. Wait, watch this <laughs> space. So, it was a very, everything was quite slow in those days. But definitely, yeah. in the 80s, you know, like you were saying, things did start changing, I think, quite a bit because suddenly you got all this kind of independent music. And I think one thing that, that made a big difference to that period was there was a, a lot of unemployment in the early 80s. So, a lot of people who were leaving school just thought, There's nothing on. I'll just claim, you know, Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance schemes, which gave a lot of people who I have spoke to on this show. Yes, that's what we all did as a band. We all signed on for a year as, you know, the Enterprise Allowance. So it gave us basically a a grant to be musicians, basically get wasted for a year, play music And, and that kind of the gatekeepers of that period. And you know, it's something you probably realize with your students is that the gatekeepers were so big then, you know, there weren't that many, but you know, I'd play on the John Peel show and the John Peel session, and suddenly you had all these little venues in every town, didn't you? That would say, Hey, Monday night, come to Norwich, you could play at the Wild Club, or come to the Princess Charlotte at Leicester or the George Roby in London, or you know, the whole country had an indie night of nerdy people like myself who would turn up for 2.99 or for two pound and see three bands that you would look back and go bloody hell primal scream support you know creation record three double a triple bill you know for two pounds it was like i don't look back on it it's like god the golden age but it was like it was the age wasn't it it was just what happened i mean i did this interview with this guy who did a book called london the lost venue oh no.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, well, that looks interesting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you went, yeah, I remember John Peel saying, oh, yeah, so and so is playing here tonight. And they're basically living rooms, weren't they? You know, but that's where yeah. all those bands got to play in front of new people. So the 80s was quite interesting. But then, that's the other thing. Um, you talk about being tribal. You had, you know, lots of little tribes, but the mainstream charts had that kind of Trevor Horn-esque production, Tina Turner, Dire Straits, Duran Duran, ABC, Frankie. Then you had all the indie stuff. And so it was kind of easy to find where you fitted in, whether you felt like you were going to be the face going to you know posh nightclubs, feeling with Boy George, or you're just going to be a bit lonely and alienated. That's me going going to indie nights. So it was kind of like, oh, that's my gang. So it was kind of interesting, wasn't it, at that period?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously there were subcultures within those, but I think you're right in the fact there were two sides. You either went to the clubs or you went to the gigs. You're a gigger or a clubber, in a way. I think that was the way that I looked at it. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, uh, I mean, obviously we grew up in Slough, but Windsor was our, where we went, and the Old Trout was the venue there, and I worked there for a while, and obviously that's where, the, as a band, we got our first ever support show. So we yeah, we supported. Like the Pixies and Teenage Fan Club and all these bands, and it helped us. Um, but I ran a I ran a sort of club night there, an indie club night, at, you know, at the same time. Um, and everyone that you know that you knew in say it was your age, you know, half of them were going to ritzy club you know, club nights with their with their shoot proper shoes on and no trainers type thing. And the other half were wearing long overcoats and coming to nights like ours, all going to watch Carter USM or birdland or something like that and that was that was kind of you know the the sort of the next stage of those early teen years the the sort of point where i thought oh maybe maybe i could start a band kind of thing um was at that point you know you know uh, but but within that there were also cultures within that because you had your more sort of goth end you had new sounds starting to come through the sort of early parts of the electronic age beginning to make a difference obviously hip-hop had sort of arrived and was kind of straddling the two worlds in a way it was kind of club music but it didn't really work in a club and it's indie music but it didn't quite work it you know it's funny and obviously now it's got its own space if you like within yes. all of that um but it was quite early days you know the early sort of public enemy stuff and what have you. you know it was visceral enough and attacking enough to work on an indie night but it wasn't indie you know so i guess you know if anything it shows that things always evolve and change and what what made, makes the changes is is the, is the opening up of the media channels or the, the opportunities to hear things that you didn't before, you know. When, when th- you know, where else would I have found out about music? I, I, might, have, I might have had, you know, a, an older sister who was into pop and that's all I had and that would have taken me down that route, if you like, because you didn't have the opportunities through media. And okay. to be able to repeat seeing or hearing things, you know, I'd wait for sounds to arrive through my door on a Wednesday. I'd read about bands. Uh, they look right. The The write-up sounded good, but I didn't know what it sounded like. I had mm. no idea. I had an idea. It was more like a slow seduction. It was much more of a seduction. I, mean, I remember Lloyd Cole and the Commotions being a good example. I saw a write-up of uh, Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, and it sounded, inter- sounded interesting. I think because they mentioned the Smiths about eight times in it or something like that. Oh, I'll note that
0: one. Sophisticated pop.
1: Yeah. And then it was one night I listened to John Peel, and I literally heard the last... I don't know, 30, 40 seconds of perfect skin. I was like, who is this?
0: Yeah. And
1: he didn't mention, he obviously mentioned it at the start, not afterwards. So I didn't know who it was. And I, did, I so I couldn't connect the two things together or anything. And it, and it was about five nights later that he said, oh, I'll replace a song. So it's Loy on the question. Like, oh, I'm interested in them. And he played that song. Like, it's them, you know. Yeah. So now I'm like, I'm in, I'm in love with this band. And of course it ended up on top of the pops, as you were mentioning a few weeks later. And it's like, yeah, my new favourite band. And of course, looking back, you know, just look like a bunch of geography teachers I mean they're the most awkward looking you know there's nothing cool about them whatsoever but I was in love by then you know and that's kind of what's that yeah. kind of seduction does for you you know you just I don't care what you look like anymore whereas now you do need you know you do need to look right you need to say the right things you need to have your social media presence correct for everything else to work for you so I think you kind of get away with being just good at music if you like or just good at writing songs whereas I don't think you really can anymore. You're expecting to be more multimedia. So,
0: Yes, God knows how the Smiths will get on. Because actually, interesting, just keeping in the 80s, there was kind of, there was a, fun, I think indie was like between 83 to 87, which was the years of the Smiths. Mm. And then when they broke up, there was like the party was kind of finishing and then Ecstasy came along. And then it was like every, you know, the, the kind of the media, the music papers kind of wanted that primal scream, soup dragons um yeah the happy mondays really so a lot of bands i've interviewed they kind of started going actually no one wanted us anymore like yeah yeah no or the wolfhands and all those bands mm-hmm. basically the bands on the c86 were like mm-hmm. i think we've had our period We're you know stump bogshed and, and those kind mm-hmm, of yeah. classic classic kind of awkward bands and i think they just realized <clears throat> they were just good for a <clears throat> good for a one album which was good so when did you start thinking i'm gonna I want to get a band together.
1: I think it was when I I I, I went to a, I went to a grammar school and I hated it. I, I mean, I hated it from the minute I got there. I didn't want to go there until the day I left. And I ended up being forced to go back for the sixth form. It was like, you've got to finish this. And I went back and I went in for the first day. And I think I went in for the second day and I walked out and I went, I'm never going back. And there was a college at Windsor, Windsor College, Windsor and Maidenhead College is full name. Uh, and I knew all, through all the cool kids were going. And I went, I'll go in there. And I walked there. It's about seven miles. I just walked directly out of the front of the school and I walked there. And I was sat in the reception saying, I've got to come here. I've got to come here. And they're like, we've started. There's no room. you Can't come in. I looked on the door and the said, you know, OK, we'll get you a uh, get you. A, I think they just want to get rid of me, basically. So we'll get the deputy head to speak to you. And on the door, it's Deputy Head D Bowie, no word of a lie. <laughs> that was what it said on there. I am like, okay. Anyway, so I went and meet him. Remember, he had a big beard and stuff. And he was just trying to... Up. And I, was just, I think I must have just been begging at this point, I said, I've got to come here. So I ended up starting on the only courses that had any space. So I got to go on the English literature course, which I won anyway, and pottery, weirdly. Because that's what he did in the 80s, right? That was a legitimate thing to do. So I started with that. Anyway. Fast forward within six months, I just it just completely transformed me, the people I was around. I was a social secretary of the of, within the year. Uh, I started an indie night, uh, and nearly everyone in my classes was in a band, simple as that. There was a brilliant band it was, which involved nine people who were all at the college, and they were called Nine Steps to Ugly. and oh. um, and a guy called Nick, who was like the coolest indie kid that I knew by a long way, it was this kind of band. And they play at the Windsor Arts Centre and I'd go to every, and they play every week and i went to every gig. And it was very indie, you know, like painfully so, if you like. <laughs> and um, I think I just, you know, I just thought, everyone else is in a band. There's another guy called Dave Bess, who used to hang around in the cafe and he was in a band. was like, everyone was in a band. And I think it just became natural to go and start a band. But I realised... But most of my friends that I could start a band with weren't necessarily the cool kids at the college. So no one else at the college was going to be in this band. It was clear. Um, but a friend of mine, Sean, who's the bass player in the band, we we kind of started mucking about trying to get things together. And um, it kind of evolved from there. So I guess a lot of bands work this way, particularly indie bands. Is It just became, does anyone know a guitarist? Does anyone know a drummer kind yeah. of situation? Um so we were a bit of a strange ragtag, really, when we started. I mean, obviously, I was all very fay and into my, you know, you know, oh, maybe I could just be a poet and look really painted on stage. Uh, and then, you know, Sean was very sort of he loved sort of Franco's to Hollywood, and you know, he was just a bit more of the funk side of things. And then uh, we got introduced to Giles, who was became our guitarist, who was you know a little bit younger than us, a year or so younger than us, and was the classic sort of bedroom introvert, if you like. And he was into like ministry and nine inch nails and all this kind of stuff uh, and then our drummer was more into sort of just what we call straighthead rock but he had a basement which we could rehearse in you know and this kind of formed the nucleus of just being thrown <laughs> together but we just you know we didn't really have much in common i was obviously the the most sort of if you like driven and bullshit of the lot so i had vision of what could happen and we actually found the only band that we actually all had really in common that we all seemed to like and all been to see was the wonder stuff and it was just one of those things where i went okay so if we've all kind of liked the wonder stuff let's try and do a wonder stuff song so i was going to be playing guitar and i think sean was going to be the singer i think that's how it's going to work but then we started to do a cover and then i realized that no one else knew any words to any songs and i just couldn't I thought, how do you know the words to songs i mean it's just like it's the most important part of the song you know so yes. i would be singing like the words to keep everyone in time when we change to a chorus and then it just kind of evolved from there that I ended up being the singer yeah so I tried to be a singer and a guitarist together and realized that I wasn't particularly good at either of them and doing them both together I was really bad so I should just choose one um so we got another guitarist in and Giles was a virtuoso guitar player so you don't really need me so uh yeah that's why I decided to be so How to be did a you singer. find
0: your did you how did you find your voice because it's quite a, a thing isn't it to sing especially in front of people on a stage I mean did it come naturally
1: I think I think so I don't think i ever really consciously thought of it I think I consciously think about it more now than I ever did then (laughs) I think it was I was more interested in just going oh I've got all this amazing sort of like poetry to tell everyone so let's do that you know Um, and I don't think I tried to model it on anyone I think I just I think you know I didn't never had a what I call a, a, a strong rock voice or anything like that so it was very much a case of trying to just project it as best I could um but also also i never I never wanted to go into that kind of mumbly side of things because I was very keen for my words to get heard however yes. obnoxious they may be at the time um so I think you know I think it just became
0: quite quite natural really Did I don't you think find I, it a point because I mean this is very simplistic hey what the hell um you know i, I mentioned that in the you know years and then you had that kind of dance and then you had the grunge period but then you within that you had those other bands that were coming from north london like my bloody valentine and then lush mm. silverfish mm. the faith healer so there was a bit of a noise thing going on there yeah and actually there was the kind of shoegaze and it started did you sort of look around going jesus christ what what do, what where do we slightly fit into this well, this is a funny thing really uh the plain answer to that is no
1: I don't think I ever looked left or right. And it was one of the things that, you know, obviously it's very easy to look back in hindsight. We were quite willfully naive of what was going on. I mean, I don't think there was ever any point where we were going, we've got a plan here. We're going to try and do this and try and do that and try and be part of this. I think we just carried on doing our thing. And, you know, a couple of events kind of conspired in our favor and got us kind of noticed. And in a way, the kind of the the wheel started turning perhaps well, it might be not too early because you can never really choose when the wheel turns, but it was a bit like, oh, we're off, are we? And it just, you know, we were just on a runaway cart, really. Yeah. three or so years that we survived in that first incarnation. <laughs> and it's really funny because everyone, you know, the only thing I was very conscious of really was obviously the, the other sort of Thames Valley bands because we, we were from the Thames Valley and we kept getting lumped in with Chapter House and with Ride and with Slow Dive. And I'm good friends with, with Mark and, I was, you know, I, I love Ride you know because uh, they were just an amazing band but I wouldn't say it really got our go but it was a bit like it just it's a bit simplistic to sort of go oh you're 22 miles away from Reading therefore you're a shoegaze band it's just ridiculous kind of lazy journalism if you like but I think looking back it's like well where the hell were they going to put us because we weren't really part of that Birmingham thing that was happening with like the Wonder Stuff and Sand Kings and all of those kind of bands and I, we weren't a shoegaze band from sort of west end of the sort of the thames valley uh we weren't part of the london scene because we weren't um and the noise scene that was going on there where did we fit in yeah but i think it's because yes. we were just such i suppose we were just sort of still fans while we were in a band if you know what i mean we you know we were we we did discuss at times whether we were going to do a gig or go to a gig it was like oh we've got this gig on on thursday Should we know but we don't we want to go and see the corn dollies? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. With that instead then, you know, we were still at that kind of mentality, like which great. was quite which was quite interesting. So so yeah, the very short answer is no, never, never conscious really of what else was going on at the time, never really thinking of it as the game that it these things inevitably come was 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 gonna to have to be played.
0: Yes, because I was saying that like a lot of bands, I didn't realise this until doing all these interviews, have that five-year narrative of the first 12 months getting together, the John Peel played in the session that first album things going well the second album not, not so good yeah, if anybody yeah. ever does america just cancel christmas i mean that's the yeah, end of most yeah. bands isn't it so what was it what is. was your kind of narrative like because you pretty
1: much bang on there <laughs> that was pretty much it i mean you know we were ostensibly a live band we just couldn't believe people wanted us to play really and i guess the one thing was we were always you know we were never we were never a massive band i don't think we ever we never set ourselves up to be a big band either. I don't think, you know, just in even our own minds, you know, or the way they were doing things. So we play anyway, you know, playing Halifax, playing Aldershot, we're playing wherever there was a gig on, we would go and play.
0: So um, was it the case then that people would just phone and say, oh, Tuesday night, do you want to come up in a month's time? Yeah, well, we
1: had a kind of a local guy who was a local promoter who was sort of managing us and then, sort of, you know, as things sort of developed, sort of, I guess, did manage us. But um, so, you know, there was there was a, that you know, that promoter's network, I guess, a little bit going on. Yes. We were doing a few shows in London and stuff. And we just started doing these sort of shows wherever anyone would kind of take us, really. Um and uh, I've kind of forgot what the thread of what we're talking about what was it all about?
0: Your narrative the narrative, the way it sort yes. of developed and uh yeah. and you went from A to B. Oh, yes, so, that's the thing yeah. that everybody now talks about. Not in the oh, it was better back in those days compared to now I think most people just go I have no idea how bands do it now but in our day this is what you did and this was Mm. the network and yeah and that and you got it was it was yeah it was a very There was a very sort
1: of clear ladder you know it was you know you had to get some kind of deal if you wanted to get your records distributed and therefore get played on the radio so everyone was chasing some kind of deal I guess maybe not chasing but certainly aware that that was something they would be looking for yeah. um the way to do that was to go and play and hopefully a talent scout would see you know there was a very sort of then you get written about in certain papers or played on a John Peel show or or, or similar um, and you could kind of go oh we've, we're, oh, we've moved kind yeah. of moved up the league a little bit and of course all other promoters would see that too and go oh they've moved up the league we'll pay another 25 pounds if they come and, you know <laughs> it was like oh we've got up 75 pound a gig you know yeah. it was it was very We're
0: no longer
1: third on the bill. Yeah, it was like, oh, we're we're up second, you know. And um, so I think there was quite a lot of that, you know, uh, going on. But yeah, going back to the narrative, I think we were, you know, we were just kind of, yeah, we'll just get in a van and go and play anywhere. And we were quite. I think we're always quite, and I think it's played out in the second part of what we, you know, this, this is the new version of what we're doing is we're always very close to the people who came to see us play. I think we are just amazed that anyone wanted to come. So we were just always very thankful. We were never that kind of, we're on the stage and you're down there. You know, yeah. We were having a drink with them beforehand and afterwards and go around their house for a party or invite them all into the dressing room, Um, you know, which wasn't the thing to do, I guess, looking back. But that's what we did.
0: That and, was the early meet and greet, really, isn't it? Now, now people are desperate to
1: do idea, it's something that, you know, we have to espouse so much to to you know to, to new musicians now. It's like, you know, you've got to be very, you know, it's very much about you feeding your audience directly and stuff. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, that's how we kind of started. And I guess by the time we got round to, you know, it, you know we, we ended up signing a, a record deal after a few, few of our EPs had done well in the indie charts and we'd, you know, had a few TV appearances and been on a couple of decent festivals and stuff. And it was like, so we signed, obviously, to Polydor. And then... Um, you know, their first album very much was I like I think most people's first album. It's just a collection of your best, you know, ten or twelve songs that you've been playing live for the last three years since your inception. Um and I think that was kind of the first, you know, part of that narrative was just, you know, we'll put that together as an album, put it out. Uh and obviously by this point we had a bit more of a record label machine sort of I'd say whirring for us, I'd say vaguely vaguely <laughs> touching us occasionally from a distance um but obviously it led to some good things and, and and what have you and we did get to tour america and stuff and then you know and then we just relentlessly toured and we toured with some big bands like james and stuff like that we toured with jesus and mary chain in europe and all these kind of things and it was we were ostensibly a live band really we didn't really know the recording studio very well we were very much uh yeah very much not just a live band and then hopefully some you know so getting someone like steven street to come and do our records was obviously but. I still remember saying, "It's a record label." I went, "Who would you like to produce your records?" And I just went, Stephen Street or nobody, just on the off chance." And then we got a phone call two weeks later, going, "Yeah, Steven's doing your album." And I was like, "What?" So yeah, that was yes. quite a moment.
0: And what was that experience uh, like? Because obviously, it's 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 probably a little bit intimidating when you think, "Oh my God, fake it till we make it." What what are we gonna do? Jesus Christ! I think
1: initially, I, I was just completely dumbstruck by the whole idea that this man who was making made some of the I thought were the greatest records ever was kind of making our record and I I, I didn't really know I think you just you just stay completely uh you just let him go on with it in a way you know you try and offer some kind of like oh that sounds good maybe it could have a bit more oh and then you sort of leave the room you know <laughs> <laughs> like that. But obviously yeah. we got to know him pretty well um, I've just I've just been in contact with him recently, actually. Just sent him the new record, so it's uh, nice nice to speak speak with him again. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess it was just quite quite intimidating. I don't know; it just felt a little bit surreal. I think really, I think, well, you know, it's just little old us, you know. And yet, this guy who's so sought after is is kind of doing our record. Thank thinking, Thank yeah. God, I didn't, I
0: didn't mention Steve Albini instead. But um, yeah. how do you cope with doing the second album then? Because obviously, like oh, you- wow. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> not well (laughs) because you've got all that that material you've been working and i always remember seeing a a documentary about twisted sister and they had been playing for years really big venues but no one would touch them but they knew their material really well Mm. and obviously it's like oh we've got a record deal after all this time so it's like bomb and then the second album is like oh a bit tricky now because you know we're gonna have to start again so i just wondered how that was that process was for you
1: well, yeah, I mean, obviously by this time we were part of a, you know, a major label machine, you know, as I say, very much the, uh, the 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 black sheep over in the corner, but we were we were still part of that. So the pressure is on pretty quickly to, like, go and make another record. Uh, we were touring quite relentlessly and we, we went to America and we toured America and we'd started putting the new album together. But, you know, the it wasn't the same paradigm that we'd had previously, which was a bunch of us jamming in a, you know, in a in our drummer's basement to come up with these sort of ideas, songs, you know. Um, so it was quite fractured, really. We were kind of writing bits of songs here, bits of songs there. Um, there were a few sort of issues within the band because we were just exhausted, frankly. We just, you know, we just, we just, the, the train started and we we were on it and off, off we went. And, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have the greatest sort of structure around us, and we were quite young and naive, and all that kind of stuff. And how did so the, the dynamic?
0: Th- how did the dynamic between the five of you work? I mean, who you know? Did you start falling into roles in the creative way, not not in the other way? But you know, in, in sort of oh, you've got the music, I've got the lyrics, or you know, yeah. did, were there partnerships that started to develop, and did some people? Yeah, I mean, but,
1: yeah, the, song, the songs are ostensibly written by me and me and Giles. You know, I'd be the, the words and, and the and top line melody, and he'd be music and obviously I would have very strong feelings about the music <laughs> and uh, he wasn't allowed to express his about my lyrics so yeah I guess there was a little bit of a, uh, uh, an imbalance there if you like but, um, but yeah I mean that's something that sort of continues today in fact is something that's quite interesting that we were very different musically you know and what we were influenced by and maybe that's what put us in that made what we did and I think even to this day people say you were still very unique in the way your sound was you, you sounded like things but like nothing at the same time um, and that wasn't on purpose I think it was just these two different sort of viewpoints on on this kind of indie idea he was coming from a much more hard end angry young man end and I was very much the kind of iconic kind of yeah you know like yes.
0: tell this story. well I think that's but, always that's always for me that's one of the great things with a lot of the indie music that sometimes if you listen to a band, you're like, oh, this reminds me of someone else. I might as just go and play the original, you know, the the, the source. Yeah. Whereas when I did, you know, like certain, you know, and the Smiths were one of those ones, I have no idea what they were listening to. You know, I have no yeah. idea who they're slightly copying here. You know, whereas other bands you go, blimey, that's the Beatles or, you know, that's yeah, the Phoenix. You yeah. know yeah. what I mean? It was just, so it's always a kind of a, a good thing when you can't tell. I remember John Peel saying that about certain bands that you just felt really like, because otherwise you just think, oh, oh that just minds I must go and play my Jethro Tull album because that just, just ripped <laughs> yeah. off Jethro Tull, you know. So, yeah. so yes, it, it, so it's a good thing really, you know, to have that kind of yeah. creative thing. I,
1: I guess it kind of just created what became, came in, I guess still is a sort of center spine of our sound, so, um, you know, but it was a very difficult record to make. It was made It was made and recorded at, at two sides of a US tour where we, well, I'd certainly become very strained with the others. We. We weren't in the studio together for the second part of the album recording, so it's never a good sign, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, we, fin- we, we made the album and sort of came out. But I mean, I think ostensibly we were over as a band by the time that album was coming out. And, you know, um, I think we just wanted different things. I had a different, I think I was starting to wake up to what was possible. And maybe the others were still happy with how it was. I, you know, maybe that's a yes. viewpoint. They may have a different one. But, it's not like I had any great answers. I just felt we need to do something. Anyway, I mean, looking back at it, I mean, I, I did not listen to that album at all until 2015. It was the first time I ever listened to that album. Um,
0: which pain. I did. God, that's Because t- I, did, oh, I it, was, did an interview it with the- it,
1: took a, it took me a day to actually put it on. I had it next to the, next to the player and I just thought, and I couldn't, I couldn't even remember how some of those songs went because that whole, that whole period was just, just blanked out of my mind completely. It's, or just, well, suppressed. Um, And then sort of played it and it wasn't as bad, anywhere near as bad as I thought it was. (laughs) Um, Actually, as it turns out, and and subsequently since we've been sort of back and we've had our sort of, you know, people who were, fans back in the day and new fans, you know, some of the songs on the second album are their, their favourite songs. and They're like staples in our live set now and possibly my, some of my favourite songs are off that album. Maybe because it's a lost record to me and it's all very new. Yes, <laughs> I don't know.
0: Because the Zombies have got a classic album, haven't they, which they recorded and got and then they spit up. And then 30 years later, people go something, an oracle. I can't remember the exact title of that album, but it was like, God, you've got to, you know, like everyone from Paul Weller to... And lots of people say that's the best album ever. So, the, you know, Colin Bluntstone and whoever the other guy is had to sort of reform and play that album from start to finish. And I suppose they had a very similar experience in the sense of we can, you know, I don't know exactly because I can't quite remember. Though I've done an interview with Colin, but that a long time ago. But you know, that that experience of recording some. So, did you kind of know that you were going to break up after that album came, you know, was finished?
1: Yeah, I think it was unsaid, but I think, yeah, I think we knew. Well, I think what we really wanted and what I wanted for a while was I wanted a break. I, I just thought, we just let's not bake this record, let's not finish this record, you know. I think, there's, you know, looking back on it, you can see what we were trying to do. We just didn't quite manage it, you know. There was there was an elements of what could have made the next, um, you know, the next step for us as a band, you know, to sort of move up onto a new, a new area, and there's elements in there, but we're just... know whether whether it was our own exhaustion or whether it was label pressure i don't really know what the mix was the album was done it was coming out and yeah it was pretty much almost straight away we were like i was like well we we just split up i moved to london and that was that yes Um, because i did an interview
0: with um is it tim from james and he said that they split up the first time was when they were sitting around the swimming pool in you know at the hotel and he said shall we just split up because we all really hate each other and they went yep that's great let's go bye yeah. you know and that was it so did you have a, a slightly similar experience or did you just not turn up to a, to a meeting
1: yeah i think i was becoming a bit erratic about things and then um i can't remember who it was i was it Sean and the manager came up and said you know the rest of the band have been talking and i really want you to be in a band anymore and I went, well, that's fine because i don't want to be in it either you know it was one of those conversations uh and that was pr- pretty much it and i think they were trying to I think they tried to stay thousand dollars there for a little bit with our sound man being the singer it was weird um but anyway that's not a story um but i was i was just no i was, just, I was like i'm done with this you know i, I paid in pubs for two years or a year and for two summers i loved it it was great it was just simple life you know plowman's at lunchtime and overalls on there was something really simple about it i just don't think at the time i was very ready to be for the pressure i think also it's at, at the time i didn't really realize sometimes being the front person you you kind of take on the whole persona whether you like it or not um, yeah. and so you feel very responsible for not just your own projection but actually the projection of others as well and i know that the way that i was for some members of the band certain times wasn't quite how they would like to be perceived etc so I can see how that can cause a problem now um at the time you're young and you don't know because I know Stuart
0: um, Copeland from the police said that um they needed to have band therapy did you feel that you could have done with band therapy or just a break
1: yeah well Giles was having therapy um but yeah I mean I think yeah in in uh, in hindsight yeah I think I just think First of all, a break would have just really helped us, just away from each other. We literally lived in each other's pockets for, you know, it was all isn't that what you want to do as a band. It's like, well, yeah, of course it is. But we were we were relentlessly on the road, or we were in a basement, or we were in a studio. And that's what we did for like, you know, 18 to 24 months. Just non-stop. And I'm not saying it was bad, and I don't think it was like it's not why it was us, it's just the way that it was. Uh and you just sometimes just need to get away a little bit, you know, collect your thoughts, try and work out what is going on, you know, <laughs> with everything, with yourself as a band, where it goes next. And I just don't think we really did that. Maybe we were given the opportunity and we just didn't take it. I don't really remember, if I'm honest, but we didn't. That's what I do know. Yes. And it just came to a kind of natural uh head, I guess, really. You know, and we're all quite, you know, nice guys. So it was never it was never gonna be trying to hit each other with baseball bats or making snide
0: Snide remarks in the press did you just I mean because then you split up and then you had Britpop did you kind of did you just put all your stuff in a box and then put it in the attic and then just say forget that I'm just not I'm doing painting I'm going to the pub to paint or did you (laughs) watch Top of the Pots going we should be on that show shouldn't we we could be clearing up cleaning up here well my my
1: um well no my my path was sort of changed but didn't because what I did was I started, to, I went into, went into the industry itself, you know, I, I started working for a promotions company uh, and started a whole indie promotions company, initially for for in, indie DJs if you like so I've worked on some of the biggest records that happened throughout the Britpop period yes. I, was, I was just my biggest client um, you know I've got Odelay by Beck just behind me there, I've got a load more downstairs Verve and Killers and all these kind of bands, you know. So I was right in the heart of that Britpop thing. But I just I didn't want to be the guy that was in a band before, so I never mentioned it to anyone. I mean, some people knew and went, "Oh my God, you, oh you're that guy." And other people didn't know for ten years and whatever, and they went, "You never told me you were in that." You know, why would I? (laughs) Because I'm a different person now. Yes, absolutely. So I guess I've never really left the industry, but you know, I just didn't harbour any real interest at all in either getting the band back together or. I mean, I did. I did a, a short-term band with um, Billy Bragg's guitarist, Wiggy, called Click. We put a band together for six months to a year um, and did a few shows and made a made an album. Don't think we ever put it out, put uh, a seven-inch album. That was it. Um, but yeah, I just thought, I guess I just thought, oh, I've had my go. <laughs> and then of course, suddenly your whole, what you're doing is you're just doing it for or with others. And it's quite funny because obviously since we've, since we've sort of come back and we play some of, some of these nostalgia shows or whatever you want to call them, which, which spans quite a long period of time, you know, most of the 90s. So you end up playing with bands like, you know, I don't know, Embrace and Shed 7 and all these guys. And it, all, all bands that I've worked on <laughs> as a promo. Yes. And it's, I, I remember there was um, we played with the Blue Tones and I always really loved it. I particularly like Mark. He's just a, just a good guy, a really good songwriter. And he was doing his own thing. And he, and we were we were he was sharing dressing room where you had, you know, doors next to each other. He had to go through the same corridor. Uh, we were in our bit and we came through. And I was like, All right, hello, mate. And he oh, like, he oh, hello. And We had a chat because he knew me as someone who did promotion on his records. And then he just went, so what, what are you doing here? Are you doing some promo? And I was like, no, I'm in a band. And he went, what? You know, it was one of those kind of
0: moments. Excellent.
1: <laughs> and then he was like, oh my God, you're in that band. Because we ended up playing with a lot of bands. There aren't many bands who started in the 80s still going out and doing tours, I guess, really. So,
0: you yeah.
1: know, a few others. But, um so we are the old, we are the old band, you know. You are it's the like... oldest.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, the other ones that have slightly kept going from the C86 days are playing. They're not on those kind of festival no. circuits particularly. I mean, they, they're playing in small little pubs and mm-hmm. they didn't, and they're probably not... I mean, they just wouldn't quite fit into the shine with the two eyes no. kind of festival, no. um, yeah. So it's kind of yeah, you are actually, and and I did do an interview once with a, one of the members, well, or two of the members for Lush when they did their um, they reformed. I, I yeah. can't talk about that on there, <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's like it was yeah, I'll never be able to play one of those interviews, oh my God. um, because it was all yeah. it ended badly. Lawyers, anyway. So um. <laughs> God, yeah i know but it was a very funny story yeah. Going back
1: quickly to the 80s thing where you you know our fans in 80s but we did tour we did tour with house of love uh well was it last year yeah it was last year still last they were
0: year, doing yeah. america weren't they they did
1: america but they did we did a short uk tour um anniversary of something or other for them um which was great because we're, we're big fans of terry bick is good friends of ours uh, and that was that was that was a wonderful support tour to do one because we were the younger band that was amazing um the audience was actually older than the audience we are used to slightly because it was very much yeah 50 and up rather than 40 and up and um and also getting to play some really beautiful venues. you got to play the roundhouse in london which i've always looked at in awe and gone you've got to be a proper band to play in there and then get that chance to play there also the fact that there's just no pressure on you. And I forgot what that supporting was like. You just You just turn yes. up, turn up later, That you do a sound check for like half an hour, you go and have something away, then you're on. It's like, this is great, I love all this. <laughs> um, also we just did the sound on the stage and everything. It was like, I could actually hear the band, like fully. Um, and it was just like, God, they're really good, aren't they? <laughs> they actually sound really great. Because normally you just have whatever's in your wedge sort of mixed at you, usually too much of the guitar. And then you move over here and it's just drums. And, you know, <laughs> your experience of a live show is very different to anyone out the front in that respect. And I remember a couple, I think, playing in Newcastle, they were just, we have quite long instrumental bits in the songs. And I just almost forgot to start singing again. I was "Can i join enjoying this. This,
0: sound, this band sounds great. Oh, it's, all, it's my band. <laughs> you know, <laughs>
1: wondering about the stage and what happened
0: to for you to want to bring the band and reform again you know um five six years ago did was there a moment because um because people have got all different reasons for this happening mostly it's a death you know they all end up going to a funeral Mm. or and then actually and also oh yes the of time, i realized there's there's almost 20 to 25 years where a lot of people went right. That's my musical moment. That's it. Put it in the cupboard. Let's go and get a job. Come back and go. Actually, I quite enjoy. You know, find the guitar or the microphone and and start thinking about it again. Did you Did you have a moment where the rest of the band went? Jesus, I just had the same thought.
1: Well, obviously, because I worked in the industry and very knew a lot of promoters stuff. They're- I wouldn't say constantly, he was probably pushing it, but was quite often said, why don't you just get the band band together and do a couple of gigs, man? And I, and I was just like, no, I'm of no interest in opening that box ever again. You know, you know, they were, all, they were my best mates, you know, and we kind of fell out and it was like, so it was more than just a band. If we got back together, there's a, something deeper there, you know, three of us lived in a house together, opposite the drummer where we used to rehearse, you know, it was like, it was the monkeys, you know, and <laughs> we... And then it was gone and it was literally it was just gone it was like they're gone and i just i think emotionally didn't want to go back there and i kind of tentatively kept in touch with a couple of them here and there but i'd obviously be keeping a slightly icy arm's length to the whole situation and a bit a couple of tentative efforts for them to go why don't we just get back together i think i just realized that and generally it was like bygones got with bygones now you know these are people i grew up with and i just We've all got families and live in different parts. Of the and I just need to meet them again. And it'll either end up in punches or hugs. I don't know which one, but and I yeah. think they were quite worried about meeting me because I'm still, as you can tell, I'm quite, I talk a lot. I'm quite self-assured, etc. Um, and they knew I'd be coming in kind of like, if it's four against one, I'm going down fighting, you know, kind of <laughs> feeling about it. But it was amazing how quickly we just slotted back in. Uh, and it wasn't and what was really nice was it wasn't just talking about the old days. It was almost like talking about what's happening now. We were interested in each other now mm. more than do you remember when. And I thought that was really heartening. So they kind of persuaded me that we should do one rehearsal for fun. Um, OK, so we went in and I think the reason the moment that I went, oh, right. OK, was we went in and I said, well, this is going to be obviously a disaster. I've, I can't remember the words. To most of the songs, uh, I bet you bet you can't remember half a the songs Go, and we did six songs straight off the bat one after the other and it, it was like a, like a like a picture just forming in front of you and all the words came out everyone you could see Jazz thinking is he always oh, here yeah on the guitar and he played and everyone just went with it and it was like oh my god and I knew immediately when we did that I went I know that sounded better than we ever did <laughs> in 1991 and 92 because everyone's better players now and stuff like that
0: so, so did the rest of the band keep practicing and being in other? well
1: yeah they were, i mean most of them have been in bands nothing serious you know just you know um yeah just sort of local bands and stuff like that really um so it all kept their kind of you know, their hand in if you like um and then we decided we said okay then I just I don't know, I just thought, okay, we need to kind of mark this somehow. And I think there was always that feeling of unfinished business about it, which kind of led all the way to making an album. Um, I said, okay, well, let's do one show, you know, just do that reunion show, close it off, We've met, we're friends again, yes. let's close it off once and for all. And so we started, you know, a Facebook page, put a thing up, said, we'll just do like the borderline, it's about 250, 300 people, something like that. And it sold out in 24 hours. We were like, what? It did, I, can't, I don't believe it. I can barely remember this band when I was in it. Yeah. You know, how does anyone else remember it? And um, it was such—I just can't overstate what an unbelievable evening that was. It was like if there's a band version of a school reunion. It's the only way I describe it because it reminded me that we were really close with all of our fans. We were—we there was a couple of guys who used to come for us around. They were a little bit younger than us. Um, so we're talking probably about like 16, 17. We saw loads of gigs. We're playing lots like, like York on a Tuesday, and we're kind of getting our gear in, and they're there, and we're like, "Why? What, what are you doing?" And well, we came up, we bunked the train, you know. Oh my god! Anyway, they couldn't get back, so you know, they they end up sleeping in the van with us. You know, it was that kind of thing. I think we were we were very much one of one of them, and they were yes. with us. You know, we, we didn't look different. We didn't try and hold ourselves in a different paradigm. We were just the reason to start a party, I guess, was the kind of way we looked at it. And it was actually that seeing all of those people, come, some of those people come back, so it's kind of reunion, was just, yeah, it was a pretty emotional night, you know, for everybody. And um, that's what triggered it, really. And I think really after that, I realised very, I was still very reticent to get involved in any kind of like major nostalgia fest about these things you know and just thought, oh, just if we leave it here we left on a high it'd be great mm. but I'd also realized that with Giles that we you know we've been chatting a lot and we our musical tastes were very much more in common than it would ever been I mean like pretty damn close so we'd started to come up with a few ideas and started writing a few things and my whole thing has been I don't want to be in a band just to do old stuff I think it's you must do old stuff it's very important yeah but you also exist in the time you're in as well it's very important that you you exist in the moment and so we started to write some new material we made a couple of eps and we did a like a live in the studio album of kind of you know kind of a de facto greatest hits kind of thing if you like to kind of <clears throat> excuse me document how we were sounding live now um and that just felt like enough really at the time started doing more shows and you know i just really enjoyed the whole thing of being together as a band but also just being together with uh, you know the the wider group of people the you know the bigger fans who call themselves the weather watchers just being all the shows they're all adults now (laughs) you know it's it's quite yeah it was
0: have you found by have you found by doing that obviously you get the people who've grown up with you but did you suddenly because i think spotify has helped this kind of some new audience members going oh my god they're kids you know they were you know i just wondered because a lot of people have had that experience where The first time they go out, you know, it's their kind of hardcore fans. And the second time, you know, people suddenly, because of the internet, you know, they, you know, as we did, love finding an obscure band that no one else has heard. So you feel like you've discovered it. And then, you know, you just get these fans from all over the world who have gone, I've just heard that album. you think, blimey, you live in a small town in America. But you know, kid, you know, I used to love doing that. I just wondered if you also found new fans coming and seeing you that you thought oh, that's good The, the legacy of the band is continuing mm. um, I wouldn't say in any great way no <laughs> I think it's
1: very much it's still a, an older an older audience there are there are a few um. What has been interesting is is that those kind of ones who were most fervent about us, I think, obviously we reached, now we're sort of back and there's something to talk about. I started to introduce it to people of who knew who we were, but never the amount of messages I get, which is like, I knew of you <laughs> back then, but I never really listened to you really because you weren't one of the big bands. You know, listened to other bands instead, you know, or you didn't really fit in or whatever it was. Any somebody um, and now. Now I'm, you know, because I've seen you back and stuff. I I'm about listening. Oh my god! How did I miss this? You know, and all, you know, so there's been quite a lot of that, if you like. So almost it's sideways rather than a kind of yes. generational up and down, I would say.
0: I I is, kind of understand that because I I sort of there's loads of bands from the '80s that I I thought actually I didn't really listen to them the first time. A you know getting the material and I didn't want to spend three ninety nine and take a pun and also big, it's risk, like, big risk 399 it's big, like 399 was too much sometimes and also it's like actually i already got these kind of bands that fit this category and i'm now into yeah. you know what i mean it's like i've got this this and this and kind of yeah you know and there's only so much time that you want to you know give to another band while you've sort of you know suddenly gone no I've got the Bundy Boys now I've got the Smiths you know I've got I've got this and then it's you know and it's almost like do you want the the go you know I've got the Triffids I don't need the go-betweens now now I've gone back and gone oh my god the go-betweens are great you know I missed the first time you know it's like you have to be honest don't you you didn't I didn't listen to all of it no
1: but that was the thing though because of because of the the you know the only way you could have music was by was by buying it. I mean, yeah, I you could tape it, but you know, legally you could be had to buy it in a shop, you had a limited amount of money. You had to make your choices. <laughs> and you'd make your choice, you'd be looking you'd have two cassettes or, or whatever, and you'd be going, It's one or the other, and you're pouring over it and you walk back out of our price and have a thing, and you come back in and then yes. you kind of you know, make your choice. Because once you made your choice, you were kind of now dedicated. You had to ded- <laughs> you couldn't go i and listen to it a bit. It was a full dedication. Yes. to that record um and so i probably ended up lo- really loving loads of records of that period of time that i probably shouldn't have in a way just out of the sheer like you know investment this, this record will get played from track one to 10 or 12 a hundred times minimum you know <laughs> so it's going to go in me or out you know something's going to be left behind from that yeah so you want whereas now you can you can just Drop a penny in lots of different jars, if you like, and like a bit of this one and a bit of that band. I like the track of those, but they, you know. I like the way they did a cover version of that. And I like this one because of that. Whereas then it was like, you know, it was all, all altered images, or you know. <laughs> so,
0: <some laughs> but I can, better. but I can also you know, remember that, that you, you couldn't have what, you couldn't have them both somehow. No, you know? no, and also there was the thing about vinyl where you'd play side one, and sometimes didn't want to admit if you didn't like it particularly, but you were going to eventually like it or at least get your. money's worth and then there was a dreaded day where you went right side two and think i don't want to play side two and then you think oh god this is really hard again and then you just again play enough thinking right i've got my money's worth i can i can cope with that 399 not it you know some were just brilliant like the smiths and some probably weren't quite so brilliant but you know i mean elvis costello did you know great albums from start to finish but you know, there probably are albums that I've got which um, probably I think Prefab Sprite were one of those ones, though people have told me Cy 2 of Steve McQueen is good, but I just I must admit I didn't play it that much.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's it is interesting. I mean, in, I mean, in a way, I mean, it's you know, finishing the, the original question from about 45 minutes ago about the, the, the narration of where we've got to is that you know, making this album was very much the driving force was to actually make an album, and I, and I mean that in the sense that. We would never really made an album before. The first album was the collection of the best songs we've been playing live for two and a half years, recorded in a studio. And the second album was this fractured thing. Two sides of a exhausting American tour. We're on the verge of breakup, while we were trying to work out where we were going next. Yes. So the whole thing about Shocker was, and I remember saying to myself, I, "I think we can make an album, but we've got to make it like an album. We're going to make. We're going to think about what the album is meant to do." From it's Going to have two sides to it, (laughs) and it's you know, and it's going to have a flow to it. And we're we're going to think about it, everything that's going on this record is thought about in the context of a whole 45 minutes because we've never done that. He loved that because he's always loved prog, and he like he felt that was a very prog thing to do. So I'm like, great, leave it with me to kind of like try and work it out. And then, but I think it gave him an amazing palette to be much more textural in the music that he was making because he was thinking more like moods. Yeah, I think that was something that was really good, and it kind of pushed the. Pushed, uh, pushed it back over the table at me sort of lyrically to be slightly different in the way I was doing my lyrics and more thematic through what we're doing. So everything I'm saying makes it sound very prog, right? But you just kind of, I wanted to make a, and I mean, I actually, we put in, hang on, in, in when you buy the album, you actually get this this postcard which explains that it is an actual album <laughs> <that> you're <laughs> meant to be from start to finish and an explanation of the rather obnoxious title and all that kind of thing, because it just felt, this kind of needs explaining. That this is in in a, in a time when the out al- the cult of the album is not so much under pressure; it's almost obsolete. Mm. You know, this is a record that is actually designed to be listened to from start to finish if you've got the time. So yes. please try and do it at least once because at I think volume. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So I think that was the pleasing thing for me, and the thing that scratched the itch that I needed to scratch, which is to you know whether this is our last record, I don't know. Who knows? But if this is the last moment, I'll go, I've made a record that I'm proud of, an album. I can actually say, yeah, we made an album, an actual album. What about making an album when we made one? (laughs) Not, oh, yeah, there are some collections of songs on pieces of plastic. It's, this is an actual album. So um, the cult of the album, and that comes from that growing up in the 80s where you had to, you know, your favourite songs end up being the ones you didn't like at the start, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> track I seven
1: Track seven was always a weird one, wasn't it? Track seven was always a kind of, mm, you'd start t- side two with a single and then something else quite, I mean, then it'd always be like the experimental one, would be like track seven or something, <laughs> you'd be like, you'd skip it. And then later on you'd be going, that's the best thing you've ever done. It's like, it's deep and like weird, it's got minor chords in it, you know? And it's, it was always that kind of thinking it was like, okay, so we've got a track on, track on there, which in any other context than being track seven on an album just wouldn't work, but it works perfectly as track seven on this album. It would work in isolation, doesn't work. You know, it's that kind of thing that I really like. Yeah, I can,
0: I completely get that because I, I can remember, I mean, quite different, but it was Joni Mitchell's Caught and Spark and Blue albums, you know, and yeah. they, and Van Morrison's Astral Weeks and Moondance. You know, it really wasn't, it feels bad just to play one or two of those songs you've got to put the whole thing in and listen to these yeah and it is and it's the same with david bowie's ziggy stardust so again it has that feeling you know so um yeah, yeah it's interesting I mean, actually
1: the thing is that the, the even though if you like the call the album's you know under, under pressure or is obsolete the the idea of of, of thematic records is starting to come back you know i think i think that i mean i I think that the fact that particularly with things like the more thoughtful end of what you want to call it rap music or grime music or whatever, the thoughtful end of that, where the words are very well done, demands that this is a story. It's episodical. You know, you're kind of taking someone through a, yeah, through a, a bunch of episodes and stuff is, is, is great because, you know, so, so the kind of the cult, of the kind of the, the mixtape kind of idea is becoming quite a, not the mixtape that we are, remember, <laughs> yeah. as we used to make no. I was about to go the new idea of the mixtape. Um, kind of, um, it's great. And I really enjoy the fact that, that people are thinking about things longer form than three. So everyone's thinking of things as 30 seconds to work on TikTok now or thinking of longer themed,
0: yes. you
1: know, 90 minute opuses or whatever, you know, and all this kind of thing. So I think that's quite a nice two ends of the spectrum sort of
0: happening in that and do you aspect. feel as, a, as as you know because obviously this is a side of you that you've channeled into different ways transferable skills but did you sort of find yourself thinking god actually i've sort of i am that creative person still i can bring that out and i can create this thing you know i know you did your uh, working on on sort of the other, other people's records but to actually do it for yourself again did that feel quite wow that's quite a Something that you'd, you know, obviously you'd sort of buried quite well. Yeah. God, it's back and I'm, I can do this still. Did that feel quite a surprise?
1: Yeah, it did definitely feel a surprise. And I didn't know if I, I did have the confidence to, to do that. I didn't really, I, I mean, apart from, yeah, I mean, I don't think I ever verified myself the first time around whether I was actually any good at it. You know, I never got to that point where I could even have a judgment on, I didn't judge it, basically, until 2015. <laughs> um Uh, So I guess I didn't really know whether I was, I just decided not to get involved, but it's, you know, when you've got someone like Giles working alongside you on a musical capacity and his, and particularly the fact that we were finding a lot of kinship in things we were listening to and the things that we liked and, and the sounds that we had, that's me coming more to the middle ground and him home to the middle ground so like he talks enthusiastically about talk talk to me now and I'm talking about death grips to him you know and he's going well, why would you you know like, I think they're amazing you know so this is kind of we've kind of almost crossed over <laughs> I listen to a lot of harder stuff and he's doing a lot of softer stuff but it's kind of we find this bit in the middle and that's what gave me the confidence when you when I'm when I'm given the the, the, the basis that he gives me it's like wow I've got to work pretty hard to muck this up you know, <laughs> um, I think that really sort of helped. But I think you know I've learned a lot more since then. I've always hung around musicians, and I'm, and obviously now I'm sort of teaching that way and around music teachers and stuff. It's kind of helped me with thinking about melody and just construction in general, really around it. But I think the main thing that's great is the fact that we're we're not beholden to anyone. You know, we, you know, there's no there's no managers, no media, no record labels, no agents. But we feel like we might need to please, and we were always the kind of band who wanted to please everybody. So we'd always just bend to everyone's will, anyway. Yes. The fact that we make this record, and it frankly does not matter a job one way or the other, <laughs> whether anyone likes it or not. I mean, it does matter, but to me, but it doesn't in the wider scheme of things. It means that you've got complete freedom to paint as you see fit, you know. And I think that was the thing that made me realise we could, I could, you know, we could be creative again and create something that we made the record that we wanted to make. That was. I know it's the, it's the old cliche, but I think very few bands ever get to make that
0: record. And yes. I have.
1: There's not a single note on there that we did not mean to be there. There isn't a single decision that hasn't been made on there that hasn't been made by myself, Giles, or other members of the band. You know, every single part of that we stand by and go, that's all there for a reason. We haven't been cajoled, We haven't. nothing's been repolished or repainted or changed in shape, in any shape or form. It's all our own design. And I think for that reason alone, it's like, you can stand there and go, yeah, we've created a piece piece of art. You might like it, you might not, but that's what it is, and you just have to accept that, you know. Yeah. And I think that's in the biggest the biggest kind of part of the itch to scratch, if you like, you know, to go, okay, you know, we made that. So yeah, and it's definitely sort of fired me fired me up to want to stay in in a. I mean, I live in Bristol now. You know, it's a everyone's a everyone's an artist here. You know, um, so it's. I'm surrounded by it anyway you know so to be part of the general conversation here you've got to be you've got to be up to something you know uh, yeah not, well, not always on straight but everyone's up to something here.
0: <laughs> well we always because being based in Norwich I mean it's a lovely city but it didn't have it doesn't I don't feel have that kind of thing that places like Bristol or you know Brighton for a while had so it is it must be quite nice to have that kind of vibe and i suppose you know cherry red records have been bringing out all these compilations from manchester and and liverpool and sheffield and glasgow and you're thinking wow that's that's one hell of a legacy of of kind of music that's goes on in those cities and towns so it it must be quite uh an amazing community. I suppose, like we look at, you know, things like um, Laurel Canyon or sort of San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury, you think that must've been an amazing time to be in those places or New York in the seventies where, you know, a lot of artists went because it was incredibly cheap. I mean, it was horrendous as well, but you know, a lot of good art came out of it, you know, punk, rap and disco, Mm -hmm. which is pretty good. So yeah, it must be amazing actually.
1: Yeah, I mean, I moved, I've been here about eight, nine years, you know, I haven't been in London for over 20 years. Um and I'll be honest, when I first came when I first came here, I was like, this is my ticket out of working in the music industry. I got a bit bored of it all a bit jaded. I wasn't really paying attention. You know, I was very fortunate. I could go to any show I wanted to. I was working on great Records, um, done some great things. I was part of the team that made a film about creation records, you know, I'd done all these different things. I'd want a, a Sony for uh doing a documentary on radio Two about uh billy holiday who's one of my biggest uh, idols uh you know i had done loads of great stuff but i was just bought i was i was no longer a fan you know i'd stopped really listening i think so when i moved here i was gonna go right i'm not that's it I'm, I'm gonna i was actually quite excited about the idea of becoming a landscape gardener or something i don't know just <laughs> something completely different um so I took a little bit of time out uh, and, well, it felt like a long time for me. I'm quite a hundred mile an hour kind of person. So a couple of months and I started going to shows and just as a fan. And I had, I had literally hadn't done that since I was 18, 19 with no other kind of thought in my head other than like entertain me. let's just yeah. enjoy this or whatever and realised how much I'd missed just being a fan of music um, and just fell back into it. And I think it was one particular night out. And the other beauty of Bristol is it's it's got so many venues. I mean, you know, you in know, so many parts of the world, a country now, there's hardly any venues, there's hardly any nightlife of any kind. It's completely opposite here. I mean, it's just too much. So <laughs> much going on. And it's small, so you can walk everywhere. So I think in one night I went to, I saw five different things. I think I started off in a bar and someone started beatboxing on a box for money. And it was great, really good. I would chat with him. Then I went and saw just a st- proper straight up kind of post, post-punk post thing at uh, a venue just up the road on Stokescroft and then across the road in Love Inn there was a dub night happening so there was a bit of a dub DJ with a sort of guy sort of doing some kind of MCing over the top-ish in a haze of, you know, hash and what have you <laughs> it was all in one night, you know yes. then I went and saw another, another band, then I saw a friend's band who were playing and then I ended up out in the industrial estate, scene, just listen to this nosebleed. Oh no, I went to a drone. I went to my first drone night, which isn't the drones like that, just drone music yeah. at, at Tape Five Cafe underneath, which is basically just two hundred capacity, no, one hundred fifty capacity, loathed slung basement with loads of, I say men, boys, men, twenty year old men, you know, with, with jackets up to here and the caps on, listening to people make electronic drone noises. Um, And was remarkably amazing, actually. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I looked like the the guy who was like taxi driver. (laughs) So so I I experienced that. And then I went to this kind of nosebleed techno thing, which just peeled my face off. And then I went home. And I woke up next morning and went, I haven't done that. Or anything like that. I don't think I've ever done anything like that. I just went through a washing machine of madness. And it's basically led me to just fall in so I think I had a rebirth is what I'm yeah. trying to say. I stopped and then I rebirthed. I started to get involved with the local music scene here and I found this amazing band. I won't prat a lot about it now, sort of post-rock band. I've never heard a band like them. We finally made it now, they're, different. they're really young, really young. They, they, grew up, they grew up listening to electronic music, dub and drone, and they are virtuoso guitar players. So it's like a post-rock, but they don't think like a post-rock band. <laughs> it's just the strangest mix. And it is magnificent. And um, if you're interested, what, I'll send you a...
0: Yes, what are they, what are they called?
1: Well, they're about, well, they still are a band and they aren't a band, but they're called the Naturals. Not There is another Naturals, but they're Bristol's yeah. Naturals. And they're a very underground band. We finally, after two and a half years, managed to, I managed to get this album done. It was the most <laughs> excruciating thing ever. And of course, no one bought it. Um, but I still to this day think it sounds like no one literally sounds like you'll go yeah and you start listing things you know you start oh, a bit of mars volta in there and there's a bit of it, and then you go actually it's none of these none of them and just sort of throw it away they're just an extraordinary anyway it, i became just very much into that and then there was a little local label called howling owl records who were putting out kind of punkish well, the punk side of things really and uh, a band called specters who are big sort of very loud band uh joe's band and adrian's band they were, um and it's this kind of this gang kind of came around this with other naturals and specters and a few others and then i so i started sort of pseudo managing and helping quite a few of these acts and then i got introduced to this guy by Adrian from Spectres and, and Howling Owl, he said, oh, there's a guy over here, Ollie. I think you should meet him. So I met this guy and he was a big, big lad, you know, young, but big, tall and big, a lot of him, big yes. bear. And he said, oh, hi. He said, apparently you, you're you a fan of Sparkle Horse. So I went, yeah, like Mark Linkhouse is, I don't have many music heroes, but he He's in the top three. Um, he said, I don't, I never know anyone else who even knows who they are. And we ended up talking for like two hours about why Martin Kauff is so important and how the records were made and the difference between delicacy and abrasion and all these kind of things that you do in these moments. And then he said, I've made a bit of music. Some people think it sounds a bit like Sparkle Horse. I thought, that's the worst thing you could ever have said at this point. We've just said how high this bar is. Like it is the highest bar. of. But tell you, okay, send it to me. Anyway, so he sent me these three tracks and they just blew my mind. They were amazing. I mean, like homemade, delicate, weird, very sparkle horse, really, um, sort of tracks. Uh and his name's Oliver Wilde, and I just went full on with him. And you know, we made three albums, we played got big festivals, got played on the radio, all that kind of stuff happened. Um, but then unfortunately very unfortunately for him, he got ill a while just as we were doing about to do a, a record deal with the best mm-hmm. label he could have signed to um and it all just came to an abrupt halt really and mm-hmm. it was a shame but he's back now and we're great friends and um i've helped him get a, a, a finance deal and he's got a new band called pet shimmers and he's much happier in a in a band of brothers and sisters than he ever was solo i think and uh, it was a it was definitely a learning experience for me uh, i learned that i don't really want to do artist management anymore <laughs> yes. uh, not because of him but because of the circumstances and the, the unknowns that come with it you know all these things you spend so much time building them up but they're just the sandcastles and one thing can topple them uh, i managed another band called velcro hooks who are you know very much i mean it's you've got all these sort of visceral bands around at the moment you know and they were very much forerunners of that really and they were amazing and jenna was just the singer was just if you saw he just went rock star just rock star just absolute rock star. I think I, I think the first time I was gonna meet him, I said, I'll meet you on Stokescroft in this bar. And he was walking down the middle of the road, down the middle of the road with no shoes on, no top on and a fur coat down here. But not in a kind of look at me kind of way, in a well how well what? That's all I've got. You know, it was under like you just got it in you. Anyway, he had a lot of problems, had to go back to Canada. <laughs> so all the and they're about to sign a record deal. So I went through this awful period of all these things I'd worked so hard on getting to a really good place, just all collapsing at once. And then that's what sort of took me towards teaching. And um, I suppose I opened up my mind to maybe doing the band stuff again, really, because it kind of coincided with that, yes. with that period.
0: Take so, so look, lastly, what, what would you say to a, an, an 18-year-old self who was kind of, um, you know, if you could have said something to yourself, say, when you were 18 or starting out, what, what was, would, would that advice have been?
1: Probably quite a lot, really. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I think uh, it's one piece of advice. Um, don't be
1: afraid to take more time over things, I think. I am um, uh, I think there's such a great advice to sometimes just going for things and just letting the, the, the moment happen. But I think when there's a bigger structure at play sometimes it's better to step back a little bit and just go, what is actually going on here? Rather than go, oh, we'll just carry on. I'm sure it'll be fine, which I don't know. But at the same time, I don't know if I would give that advice to someone who's 18. I'd still be like, run at the wall. <laughs> run at <laughs> yeah. it. What's worse that can happen? You know, so I, you know, so it's kind of advice and it kind of isn't really. Um, yeah, I think that's probably it. Or, or maybe just listen to other people at 18 probably listen to others a bit more not you know not just always assume you know the best
0: Yes, it's but again
1: you know i work with a lot of 18 year olds and i like the fact that they just know it all it's great you know off, off you go <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll you'll bounce you'll be fine you know you'll hit a, you'll hit a wall but maybe you won't you know that is one of the great things of the moment is the fact that actually we've got just stop telling people this is the way it works and that's the way it should be and this is the way it should be it's like why should it be that way? You know, yeah. you've got, you know, you look at artists now, like, you know, Charles the Rapper turns up and says, I've got a brilliant business idea. I'll never sell my music. You know, it's a disaster, isn't it? The music industry looks at it and says, well, that's not gonna work, is it? And now everyone in the music industry wants the same business model that he's got. You know, it's like, it does take people to go. No, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. And that's what punks did. That's what hip hoppers did back in the eighties and New York and seventies, you know, that's what that's what you do. You've got to sometimes go. No, I am. I do know it all. Yes. Well, I
0: think I to get on stage, you have to have that sort of bravado and naivety in in a big bucket. You know, a lot of it. Don't yeah. You? I do through. think
1: it's definitely a mix of those two things. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, because otherwise, if you go, oh, I'm, I'm a bit doubtful. I'm not sure. I feel a bit self-conscious. It's just not going to happen, is it? You need to. You need to be that young kid walking down the street with no shoes on and going whatever
1: yeah. so I'm going to retract all that and say I wouldn't give myself any advice I'd just say go for just it just run <laughs> at the wall
0: just run, just at, run at the
1: wall what's the yeah. worst that can happen
0: and that is the end of the interview yes you didn't think it was ever going to stop did you anyway it has it's over I hope you made notes I hope you're still awake. Anyway, that was Stephen Barnes from The Thousand Yard Stair. Thank you ever so much for giving me that interview, Stephen. Much appreciated. Um, Yes, there's not much else I can say. Oh, yes, you can, um, if you want, contact details and contact me for some random reason. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. And also, all these interesting archives have been, um, yes, filed away. And you can find those on Spotify, ITunes Podbeam just go to at C eighty six show. It's all there and much, much more. Anyway, stay safe, have a great week.